Well, we had a summer house on the eastern shore, on the Choptank River, and my kids would be playing in the water, and I'd be sitting on the lawn chair and looking across the river, and it was about a mile. It was this old brick mansion that looked so mysterious. You never saw any people around. You never saw any activity. It was dark. It was huge, and I always wondered about it. And if we would go for a ride in the boat, I don't know why, but I always thought, what a great place for a runaway to hide. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind their stories, the writing process, and any other miscellaneous writing stuff that we decide to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have award-winning author Barbara Lockhart, who has published three children's books and two adult fiction novels. Barbara is a native of New York who earned her MFA at Vermont College and now lives here on the eastern shore of Maryland. At least six of her works have been published and several have earned impressive awards. Two of her children's books were originally published by Tidewater Publishers, and her most recent one, Mosey's Field, was published by Schieffer in 2013. With regard to her adult fiction, her novel Requiem for a Summer College was published by Southern Methodist University Press in 2002. This novel also earned her one of her awards from the Maryland State Arts Council. More recently, Barbara has used Amazon's CreateSpace to publish her novel Elizabeth's Field, which went on to win the 2014 Independent Book Publisher's Silver Medal Award for Regional Fiction. And now that all that's out of the way, welcome to the podcast, Barbara. Thank you, Stephanie. And I have to say, I'm so delighted that there's such a thing as saltwater media and that you are working so hard and your business is expanding. It's exciting to have this kind of group of writers and people interested and stopping by and talking about books. I love it. Well, we uh, when we started doing this podcast, you were one of the first authors that popped into my mind. Um, I haven't po- I haven't published you, obviously. You, you've had uh, success elsewhere doing that. But when I first met you, one of the things that struck me right away was I picked up Requiem for a Summer Cottage, which was the one that uh, was done in 20, 2002. And the first thing that absolutely struck me about your work is the lyricism of your the words the the beautiful gorgeous prose that came through just in the prologue to that and I thought this lady has got it going on so I knew when we started the podcast I was like I have to bring Barbara on the podcast and talk to her because she's not only you're a tremendous writer, you're also a tremendous lady. And as we're trying Thank to you, Stephanie. pull these little things together uh, with writers, you know, I sort of feel like I need to have people like you involved in the process. Mm-hmm. Because people who really, really are good at what they do. And you're really good at your craft. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. One of the things that we were talking about earlier, um, and I'd just like to bring it on an earlier, I mean three days ago when we were, is is this notion that the reason I think Stephanie likes having the credibility that you bring is because you're good and indie. And a lot of times that's not, not only, not as only, not only isn't that always the case, but it's not the impression. And the impression is one of the things that we were talking about trying to change and try to tag onto film and music instead of being some. And I think it's because self publishing or independent publishing is older than all of the other things. And mm-hmm. it did really, I think, for a good 
you know, all right. So in the beginning, it was very good, and then, but really, the last hundred and fifty years, it's it's been the place for the people. You know, it's been it's been a tougher road uh, for people who who are like, yes, I have I have an extra couple thousand dollars. I'm going to be an author. Let's go. You know what I mean? And so, getting people who who have a, who have a, an actual talent is is helpful for everybody. Mm-hmm. I have a mentor up at Vermont College that I remained in touch with over the years, and his name is Chris Noel. And when I was working on Elizabeth's Field, and uh, I had sent it out a few times and without any results, I wrote to Chris and said, I'm so sorry, but I think I have to self-publish this. And he said, well, don't be sorry. We're all doing it now. Right. And, you know, he had a good name as a writer for years. And so that gave me courage that, uh, okay, this was an okay thing to do. Right. Right. And especially when you think about oh, – because my book is very regional like yours. And, and you think about what – because I was traditionally published for, for my other – for my first two books. And you think about what you have to do anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, 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 the amount of marketing support and things like that that you mm-hmm. get from the smaller presses is, isn't any better certainly than you might get from someone like Stephanie's press where they're – there in the neighborhood and saying, "Hey, these are our people. You should you should listen to them." Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that because the publisher that I have for Eliz- for uh, Mosey's Field, the children's book, I was astonished at how much marketing I had to do for that. So the the field has definitely changed, and more and more responsibility is placed on the author. Right, and I sort of feel like that was one of the motivations I had to get into self publishing. I mean, I was. Like not to toot my horn, but you know, I won the Sophie Kerr Prize, which is the largest undergraduate literary award in the country. And I go to publish, and no one will touch it. Yeah. And so I had to self-publish. And I was like, I'm got this got this big award under my belt, and I'm going to have to self-publish. And there was there was, and I believe there still is, sort of this stigma to self-publishing that it's people who are rejects. And right. I've always had such a I've always sort of had felt very bitter about that. And I've thought, you know, there are people who are award-winning authors. There are people with really good stories to tell. They should tell them. They should right. have the ability to get it in print, to have it in published, to have it published. And the other part of that was, for me, just because someone self-publishes doesn't mean that it has to look like it came from Kinko's right. or they stapled it together. Mm-hmm. So you can have a quality product and a quality story that's properly edited, properly laid out with a nice cover, and it can look it can look right. And, mm-hmm. I, and so I've always sort of felt, you know, when people, like, as you were talking about, like, indie music is so super cool and indie, indie, indie movies are very cool. Well, why did indie authors get this, you know, like, reject stigma? And I, I've always sort of felt like I was combating that. And that was one of the reasons why I was happy to have Barbara on the podcast because she did use Amazon CreateSpace to do Elizabeth's Field, which went and turned around and won a silver medal, an international silver right. medal award from the IBPA. But she also took the time to do it right. I mean, Agreed. That's, that's the difficulty is when is when you don't use an editor. You don't have any first readers. You don't have any you, – you type it. You print it. You, you, you type it. You send it to, and that's good to create space. Yeah, and that's and that's where I think sometimes uh, independently Absolutely. published books kind of fall short. But as I said, with in my experience, they took a gander at my book 
in the editorial department there, but you know, I I had to you know wrangle my friends to do a lot more editing than I thought I was going to have to. Well, I was so lucky to have an old-fashioned editor, and I have to say that I think the world does need editors. Absolutely. Even though we probably are disappointed a lot of the time getting those brown envelopes back in the mail, um, it the system is sort of a filter. Yes. Um, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, but. I do think books need an editor. Absolutely. Uh, I know with my first editor, she made she helped me make the book the best that it could possibly be, and I am forever grateful to her. Absolutely. And what she said to me was, you know, it was a university press. She said, we don't um, go after books that will obviously make a lot of money. We go after books that we think should be in print. And right. I just, I felt so good about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because absolutely. that's what the big publishing houses look at. Will this book make money? And a lot of times I think that they go to your Twitter account and they check your followers and then yeah. decide whether or not they're going to read your pitch. Yeah. Sure, um, sure. Um, so how did you, how did you go about, let's talk about the, the book that you, you published yourself. How did you go about, did you find an editor for that? Did you use the same I people? I tried. Yeah. I tried, but I counted on my mentors up at Vermont College. I um, sent the manuscript to Catherine Lang, who was the first editor, mm-hmm. and she very kindly went over the manus- manuscript and gave me some criticism. So uh, I did have that, and I felt very confident I do have to tell you, though, that I tried two other uh, publishers, indie publishers, before I wound up at CreateSpace. And the first one, I had spent a lot of energy trying to record um, the local vernacular speech of African-Americans and white and farmers and so forth. And um, even though that is a little bit difficult to read, it's just certain sections of the book, and they are short sections. Well, when I sent it to a certain party, which I probably shouldn't name, they put it in a computer program, and it all came out with standard English. No. Right. So they, they just w- they just did automatic spell check and fix. Yeah. 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 Gosh. So I got my manuscript back. It was full of red marks, and I, you know, got my hair got whiter, and <laughs> um, so I went on to the next one. But there's a lot of mishaps out there. Well, and that's sure. and that's the difficult thing. You have to. And it's our responsibility to do it. It's our responsibility to figure out the difference between criticism that we don't like because it hurts our feelings and criticism yeah. that we don't like because it's right <laughs> and we don't like being wrong. You well, know, and, you, yeah. and finding that balance where like when someone's like, this doesn't make sense, you can't just say, well, yes, it does because it makes sense in my head and because that's the point, right? That's the point of having someone else read it because, of course, it makes sense in your head. Yeah. Otherwise, why would you have written it down? You have to really trust the person that is reading against you. Right. It has to be somebody that's on your side but will give you an honest answer otherwise. And that's what happens very often to workshops. You throw your little story out there to this group and all they do is rip it apart and you go home and you go, hmm, Hmm. Yeah. And it takes a long time to get enough strength to know that your voice is your voice and you have to carry through. Right, and, and, and to know the difference between uh, – we are they're, they're toying with having one um, – the local writers group is toying with having a uh, – what's it called? A criticism group. Oh, oh right, a critique group. A critique, critique group. group yeah. And I just can't – they're all very nice people and many of them <laughs> listen – but I can't imagine sitting there for, for three or four hours going over yeah. 
the the small things because if for me it's always if I'm not going to get I don't mind helping people yeah. but I'm really selective about the people who I let help me mm-hmm. because I don't I don't need I there's only so much whiskey in the world that tells me everything's going to be okay <laughs> and I know <laughs> and I've kind of hit my whiskey limit so yeah, I think I think that kind of goes back to what Barbara's saying is I think as a writer, you have to identify if you're going to go into a critique or a critical review of your work. I think you have to have a sense of confidence. You know, there are certain mm-hmm. people that I would never give my work to people that I like very much, but they would not be someone that I'd be like, hey, read my read this and tell me what you think. They're and not that, your audience in the first place. Yeah, they, they may not be my audience in the first place. Then there are other people who I implicitly trust that would be like stephanie this is you know you you've lost connections you've not done this or you know these Mm -hmm. sorts of things so i think you just i kind of get that same sense about a critique group i mean i've never participated in one so i can't i I probably shouldn't say exactly how i would take it but i sort of tack your way you've been in english class before right and they always hand the dumbest kid in the class your work and you're like why why did i come i could (laughs) have i could have been home watching television today now i've got to listen to this person who can barely think tell me that he doesn't understand he doesn't i don't get it you know so to me the most helpful thing and stephanie we've talked about this before in the group um and i think you had the same experience at washington college that um this one-on-one relationship that you have with a mentor absolutely and you send your work off and they critique it and it comes back and you know you trust this person but also there's a lot of positive comments like this is great. This is good. I don't understand this. And when then you get that comment, you know you have to work on that. Sure. But the whole thing was so positive um, that even with my timid, you know, presenting my work, I just gained confidence finally and, and started getting my own voice. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a real gift. That was one. I think you're absolutely right. When I was at Washington College, I had two... Uh, professors, advisors that I was working with on crossings, and they were they were very. I had I think because I implicitly trusted them. They were professors. They were people in their field. They were published. They were mm-hmm. on point. So when I felt when they gave me advice, I didn't take it personally because they were experts. And we had mm-hmm. also by that point, by the time I had been a senior, I had developed a relationship with them. They knew who I was. They knew the kind of work that I was trying to achieve and then they were able to help guide me. So I kind of felt like that, that relationship allowed me Mm -hmm. to, to grow. And the criticism was really a part of the part of the growing process for me. The key is, and I found this at Vermont college. The first thing they said, when you go up for your very first class, we cannot teach you how to write, but we can take your work seriously. Right. That's that's a good thought. That's the key. Absolutely. One of the things I wanted to um, kind of jump back on Elizabeth's field, because one of the things that – one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was as I sat and met all these authors and talked to these people, I found out these really interesting things as to why they wrote the stories they, they did. And one of the things that I liked about – or that I I believe I discovered about your work was the background as to why you did Elizabeth's field. Mm-hmm. I believe that there was a there's there's a historical component there, and I was wondering if you could just uh, tell us about that a little bit. Well, we had a summer house on the eastern shore on the Chop Tank River, 
And my kids would be playing in the water, and I'd be sitting on the lawn chair and looking across the river, and it was about a mile width at that point. There was this old brick mansion that looked so mysterious. You never saw any people around. You never saw any activity. It was dark. It was huge, and I always wondered about it. And if we would go for a ride in the boat up to Hunting Creek and all these little passages and uh, inlets and outlets, and I always... I don't know why, but I always thought, what a great place for a runaway to hide. Now, I had no connection with that. I had a very naive understanding of slavery and plantations and the cruel white landowners. When we moved to the shore and I found myself in this old farmhouse (laughs) and surrounded by an awful lot of dirt, (laughs) I just couldn't believe it. And... Then I started teaching school, and it just happened so gradually that as I began talking to people, especially my neighbor, Mary Taylor, who gave me an oral history about her background, I started to realize there was so much history in the area, and it just pulled me in. And the little uh, the church that Preacher Green had started in 1843, I passed that every day of my life, twice, going to work and coming home, never knew the significance of that very humble church. It just kind of exploded from there. And the more I read, the more the the research was very seductive because I enjoyed it so much, and uh, it was such a revelation. Right. So Elizabeth Field was really um, a historical novel based on a lot of... I think you said you spent nine years researching this. Well, I say that. I have to say that I spent... From the time I began the book to the time it was published was nine years. I did a lot of research during that time, but I didn't actually sit at the computer every day, but I was thinking about it all the time because I had this myriad fact piece of paper with all these things written on it. You know, I had a huge chart that I laid out, and the job was to get it woven together in a tapestry. That took a tremendous lot of work, and uh, I was thinking about it all the time. I was obsessed by it. You'd think you'd be talking to me, and I'd be, you know out there somewhere. I think that's when a writer knows they've got right. something good. Right, that yeah. it won't it won't leave you alone actually. Uh my uh I I have when when my pigeon book finally comes out, I probably will be able to say I've been working on it for 50 years, yeah. right? And yeah. um because it, it's my daughter's friends tease me because when I pitch a book, I'm like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait." Pigeons. And so they do that to one another like when they're out drinking. Like oh. they'll be like, "Wait yeah. for it." pigeons <laughs> just because it's like i'm upset no one else cares yeah and yeah. it also makes it hard because you have to you have to stick on it even though no one else cares and you're like hey do you know this and they're like i'm, I'm just i'm i'm at the post office leave me alone oh yeah right? nobody wants to hear what you're going through yeah. <laughs> that's just the way i've heard about is. this pigeon book before yeah. so yeah <laughs> but no i think that that i think when a writer gets bitten that way you know when you become obsessed with something and you know like you said you're having a conversation with someone and but in your head you're writing you're like i wonder what this Mm -hmm. thing is going to do or i need to go to this library and do this research or you know however you know it comes together i think that's when we know we're on to something Mm -hmm. whether or not people are going to want to read about pigeons or not that may be totally another thing but at least you know that you're on to something and there's also i wanted to ask you about this it's it's uh when you when you reach the when you reach the downhill slope, I guess you're like okay, 
it's time to stop researching and start putting it together. Did 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 it have that kind of curve for you when you? Oh, I avoided it. I mean, it was like, oh my god, one of these days I'm going to have to start writing. But the truth is that I thought about it so much that by the time I did get to the computer, I pretty much knew what the story was going to be. It was a matter of filling in the characters as largely as I could, getting the prose to be lyrical because that's the way I like to write and a whole lot of things like that. But in, I had done an awful lot of writing just walking around town. Right. And now, do you... Do you feel like only because only because it sounds like it from your reading when do you do you could I set a metronome up next to you while you are working and <laughs> kind of feel like did, does that happen to you is that just me you all of a sudden it's like okay I've and if you get into a rhythm I guess is what they call you it You do get into a rhythm and the interesting thing is I started creative creative writing classes at Salisbury and so the major there was poetry and then short stories followed that. But because of that background, there were times when it just seemed like people were writing prose that was really poetry and the reverse. Right. So that kind of – and I, I have to admit that some of my poems were the beginning of a short story. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you – how did you – how did that occur to you? It occurred because I was feeling some kind of emotion that I had to get down, mm-hmm. and that came out poetically, and then somehow that needed to be developed. But I that's can, happened to me several times. I can definitely see a poetic quality to your work, uh, mm-hmm. both in Elizabeth Field and Requiem. Uh, I know you've done like some children's books, but f- with Elizabeth Field and with Requiem for a Summer Cottage, the the way that you write is lyrical. There is a poetic quality to it. So Mm, the the voice that you have, I mean, is tremendous. And we actually recorded you reading from Elizabeth's Field, which we'll have up on the website. So I highly encourage anyone who is listening to this, go to our website, click on the little button and listen to Barbara read from Elizabeth's Field because she has a beautiful voice and and the lyricism is just, just lovely. Thank you, Stephanie. Absolutely. The um, one of the other things I wanted to kind of hit on, and I just kind of hit on it for a second there with the kids' books. You were a kindergarten teacher for, yeah. for what twenty twenty five twenty five years? years, yeah, in Dorchester County. It was the perfect job for me. It kept my feet on the ground, <laughs> and it was a wonderful distraction from the rest of my life. You get in that classroom, you cannot think about anything else. So I loved my job, and so. Did they, were the kids' books born of working from the kids? I know I had one lady who came and, and we we did a children's book for her, and it was the book idea was a result of field trips that she had with the kids. And I know you've mm-hmm. done three children's books. Were they born of working with the kids, or they were just kind of stories rolling around? Or my daughter Lynn was a terrific inspiration because she is the probably the most creative person in the family as far as thinking outside the box and she would I mean pony she said mom write me a pony story I want to paint ponies and rambling raft was a little raft that she actually had that got lost on the river and so it's that kind of thing you know we kind of worked together and then I, I would put it together but I would test my children's manuscripts with the kindergarten class well that's what I I, I wonder <laughs> about I I have no interest in children at all so <laughs> well now there's an admission so and he I'm, has four of them <laughs> <laughs> so i just want to 
put slide, he's got four kids and not interested in them at all. So <laughs> what I what I mean is I don't feel as if I'd ever take a crack at children's writing because I don't have that's a rhythm I'll never get into. Mm-hmm. How much how much do you think that your 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 day job influenced your ability to to because it's it's particular. I mean, you wouldn't know it because a lot of children's books are terrible. But there is there is a middle ground between talking down to them and not talking down to them, and to to find that middle. It's not something I could do. I would shoot over their heads or I would cat yeah. in the hat it, but I couldn't do anything in the middle at all. The first key to me was I wrote a book while I was teaching called "Read to Me, Talk with Me" because I realized that eighty percent of my kids were not read to at home. And so I decided that was going to be their homework. They had to take a book and have mommy read or daddy read. And there was a little activity they had to do in conversation afterwards. At first, when the kids read five books, I would give them a lollipop. I'd get shot for it now, I know, because of the sugar. But this was back in the 80s. My my wife's a teacher, and we've, thank God, discovered that candy is tax deductible. (laughs) But the kids didn't need the lollipop after a very short time. They would go over to the bookshelf, the book cart. Oh, get that one. No, I want that one because you get to make a big carrot with that one. I mean, there was this conversation. The excitement was thrilling to me. And it all, I I have to thank my mom. She read to me. She would read for hours as long as I begged her to read. And so that Lighting that light was probably the most important thing that a teacher and a parent can do. And that's, you know, why I, I delved into that part. Right. I, 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 I read to my children and I was read to and I thought that was wonderful. But I couldn't do the work. Like finding that to write for both adults and children just just is astounding to me. I can I can write mm-hmm. for adults confidently. But that that step sideways because it's not really a step down right no it's not no, it's, i think it's, if any, it's a yeah. very different That's all you can say is a i different feel like genre. it would be difficult as well i mean i was just sitting here thinking like wow she's got three actually four because if you count read to me um talk with me that would be actually four kids books and two adults i'm thinking like man that has got to be such a bridge to be able to go from writing something like Elizabeth field and requiem then shifting all the way over to mosey's field and how how do you how do you cross that bridge? Well, when you're with kids for 25 years, five year olds, hmm. and then you go home and you go up to that computer room and you look at this big space of a sky and this immense field, and you enter a different world. It's a matter of walking into this world and walking into that world and being there. All of you is there at that time. It's really being present in each experience. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I have to make fun of the experiences. I can't be present in them. I'm too busy, <laughs> too busy thinking of horrible, horrible things to say. Well, the other thing too is if you look at the children's books that uh, Barbara has done, they are beautifully illustrated. I mean, and Lynn Lockhart being a, a absolutely astounding, uh, mm. wonderful artist. She's pretty good. She yeah. Well, you might be kind of biased too. Um, she she's exceptionally talented so i think when you're doing kids books at least this is something that sort of crossed my desk i never thought about it until you have to do the work right, right. so what i kind of discovered with kids books you gotta have color and you gotta have illustrations 
you gotta have something to pull their attention because kids are just I mean, black and white words on a page kids are only going to get so far you got to grab them and right. i think that you did a beautiful job and oh, thank you or lynn you did a beautiful job in pulling the those one together. rule i have with children's books there shall not be a moral at the end of the story <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work i don't think and so you know so what, the, what what do you think makes a good kid's story um some kind of problem that comes around and gets resolved and comes around to a circle Okay. Because kids need to know that the world is not completely out of control. That this that's the use of fairy tales too. What's confronted is the worst evil in the world, but the Apple character comes out on top. And so I feel that that's important. So I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't realize that your daughter had done the illustration. Did did you give her direction, or is it you picked your four favorite, six favorite passages and illustrate them? What is it like working with an illustrator? Something that I've never done. Well, the only time Lynn and I had a fight was when she was saying, I can show that in pictures. There's too many words. And I would say, well, I have to have a lot of words to tell the story. And, you know, we go back and forth. But um, Lynn was, I worked around her pretty much, I think. She might tell you a different story. <laughs> <laughs> and do, do you find that that was the best way to do it you're like hey let's let's us tell this story they do the illustration is it i always think of like elton john and bernie toplin Turplin. Topin. 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 Bernie. you know Topin. elton john gets the music or the or i mean gets the words and then puts music to it or gives the music and has words put to it and it feels like that kind of that kind of collaboration feels like there's a very specific way that, and everyone may do it differently, but mm. I don't. I don't know even how to begin doing something like that. As the writer, you have to be very structured and know exactly what words are going to go on what page and what where the break is, so that the illustrator knows what to illustrate. So really, so storyboarding. You have to be very clear about that and get the structure of it correct, mm -hmm. and then the illustrator comes in, and then there can be negotiating or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and you and I talked a little bit about storyboarding being yeah. very key to kind of helping make that relationship yeah. feel pretty cohesive. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And we are just going to get ready to wrap up. Let's talk a little bit. We did talk a little bit about the business end of it in the beginning, but I do, I do want to go back to, because one of the things we like to talk about is, I'm sorry, I don't even remember how much we recorded and how much we talked about before we started recording, um, but promoting promoting your book how how much success have you had and what are some of your tips and tricks for book promotion I don't have, have any tricks I don't have <laughs> any tips I just go everywhere anybody has asked me and I sell books when I do lectures and readings but as far as the computer social media it doesn't seem to work I do have my work in local bookstores like the News Center in Easton and Cracker Jacks in Easton for the children's book and so forth. But I'm finding that the personal touch works a lot better than anything else for me. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, energy-wise, that, that does take a lot. Uh, but I, I really wonder who, if people who deal with social media completely or 100%, what their success is. I, I don't know. I've not had any feedback about that. Yeah, I've, I don't... I feel like it's a very specific audience 
who's going to buy a book based on social media. Um, even the people I know who do a lot of social media, um, their successes really come from, hi, this is me, buy my book, you know, which which is really, really daunting when you when you think about it in those terms. It's like, am I really going to have to meet every single person who's going to read this book? It's You feel like you maybe be better off just going door to door telling the story. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was, and we've we've talked about that before with with other authors. In that, you know, you it feels kind of weird, you know, when you're sitting at a table doing a book signing and people are just sort of passing by you, you know, whether you're traditionally published, um, as that has happened to you, or you know, self-published. You know, th- there tends to be a greater value or or a value add or whatever you'd want to call it when you give a lecture and you're sort of a, an expert or you're giving a talk on something and you become a focal point and then your book is like right there. So you're giving a talk on, you know, beer and you're interviewing this guy and people are hanging out and listening to this and they're like, oh, well, okay. Then it almost, you have to write a book that then you just kind of put on the side because you have to become your own brand. And right. So I sort of feel on the social media side, it becomes a bit of a necessary evil. You have to have a web page because you have to have the web presence. And you have to have so- certain social media things in order to – people are going to look for that and people are going to look it up. Like I follow Stephen King. I follow Eric Larson. I follow uh, Margaret Atwood. I follow all of them on Twitter, you know, but I don't mm. think they are really necessarily – I don't know that that's their medium, but you have to have that presence – you know, you got to have the presence, but I don't really know that that's the, the the avenue to sell a book per se. Right, but if if for nothing else, it's this is where I'll be. Exactly. One of the things that um, I've I've been very fortunate with in in my new job here at OceanCity.com is that extra exposure makes it easier to get the word out when I'm going to be someplace, and mm-hmm. that's I yeah. think the difference. That's why I'm a I'm a big proponent of that. Like if. If you go on and on and on and then you say, oh, and also it, it can't be sales all the time. It can be sales none of the time really. Mm-hmm. And then you say, hey, I'm going to be here. You might get a little bit more play than you would get if you hadn't said that. But- yeah, and I wonder – and I think you and I have touched on this a little bit. Do you think potentially there's a generational perspective on social media and some of this web stuff versus you know, the way that you've probably – the way that you came up with literature and the way that you've come through, and now all of a sudden people are like, hey, you got to be on Twitter. And it's like, really? You mm. know, I can see, and you and I have had this conversation before about meeting the people, talking with them, making that connection versus a tweet to someone out there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has astonished me going into the high schools a little bit and having a granddaughter that graduated high school, when I look at the textbooks, a lot of the literature, they're just reading excerpts right. from famous novels. Right. They're not delving, it seems to me, and I might be wrong about this. Please tell me if I am. Delving into a piece of work and really thinking about it, tearing it apart, discussing it. I don't know if that happens, and I just wonder if the generation now is going to be educated in doing that. I mean, you think about the very brief messages that are flashed back and forth, back and forth every day. Things misspelled, you know, there's no grammar. I mean, I know I'm sounding very critical of it, but at the other hand, if that's balanced by more thorough work, then that's fine. I hope it's not a substitution. Gosh, I couldn't imagine reading an excerpt of To Kill a Mockingbird and think that I had it. Exactly. 
I well, I think this is this is where I sound like a totalitarian government representative. I think that maybe there are always going to be a million people on the planet who read and enjoy literature. Let's and hope. Yes, but sometimes there are going to be seven billion people on the planet. Sometimes there are going to be five billion people. Like I yeah. think that that's kind of a fixed number. Mm-hmm. I I don't worry so much about the people who aren't into it probably weren't going to be into it there are just more of them now than there used to be just because there are more people you know there's it's so much easier to get food <laughs> you know so I, I think that i think the problem that we that i'm saying this to be horrible but i think the problem that you're addressing is <laughs> well, you know, the 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 dropping infant mortality rate is 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 really the is really the problem Let's face it, it's generational and i'm older and i just see things in a different perspective and it's the perspective i grew up with of course right so well yeah. thank you very much for joining you're us very welcome yeah, thank, thank you thank you, you for coming we, we i've loved having you here uh, thank you thank you so much For more on Barbara and her work, visit us at www.saltwatermedia.com. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Find us at saltwatermedia.com and on social media. Want to hear more? Just follow along by subscribing on iTunes to hear more behind-the-story stories. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review on iTunes. Tell your story.